Please remain standing with me for just a moment for a scripture reading. Every week at Sojourn, we go to the scriptures because it is there that the person and work of Christ are most clearly revealed. Preaching this morning for us is our pastor Dodds Pengra, uh, and he'll be preaching from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, listen to these words from, from God's word. This is Matthew 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Peace be with you. Am I on? Check. Am I good? Well, good morning, everyone. Um, my name is Dodds. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Uh, thank you for whoever wooed. I'll talk to you after. Um, um, for the past three weeks, we have been, <clears throat> excuse me, in the Gospel of Matthew. And from now until Easter, we will be uh, taking a closer look at the Sermon on the Mount and considering what human flourishing looks like in the kingdom of God. This morning we have come to Matthew 5 and the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes. We are in a world that is clearly not as it should be. I know that we all feel that. Um, this last year we've known that. And a few weeks ago we saw that. And the world has particular thoughts for how this could be fixed and this could be healed. But what we're going to see today is that in the teachings of Jesus, we have the true invitation to the kind of society and way of living that manifests life in God's kingdom and offers blessings, offers blessing to all people. The Sermon on the Mount has at times been interpreted as an attack on the Old Testament law, but as we will see, this is contrary to Jesus' own statements. He has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so, when Jesus says that we are not to hate, he's quoting Leviticus. When he says, love your enemy, he is agreeing with Moses and Solomon. And when he teaches us that lust is a form of adultery, he's saying what the 10th commandment has already said. Do not covet what is not yours. So Jesus is not correcting the law in his teaching. Rather, he is correcting the distorted teachings of the law that were being spread in Judaism. 
Last week, we heard Jesus say, follow me, as he led a restored Israel out of the old Egypt Israel that was under the reign of sin and death. He is still calling us and the world to follow him. And how do we do that? Well, that's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. And before we get to the Beatitudes, I want us to see the significance of this scene. Let's read again verses 1 and 2. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So Jesus has been preaching the good news of the kingdom of God that has come near, and the multitudes have come from all four corners of the earth, and Jesus is delivering them from bondage and death and illness and curse. And just as Moses did after he led Israel out of Egypt, Jesus goes up on a mountain and he begins to teach his disciples and the people. In the Exodus, Moses ascended a mountain and received blueprints for God's house, the tabernacle. And here, Jesus ascends a mountain and delivers blueprints for a new house, a people city. Later on, Jesus will go on to talk about salt and light, a lampstand and the law, all things that are associated with the tabernacle. But this people sitting on a hill that he's about to describe will bring light to the nations and will embody what life in God's house looks like. This is, this is an astounding moment because in Jesus' teaching here, heaven and earth are coming together again. The kingdom of heaven coming is, is another way of saying that heaven's pattern is going to be imprinted on the earth, on earth as it is in heaven. It is a fulfillment of all the promises that were told from the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, as we've seen, as we're seeing now in this text, the nations are coming to hear God's word. Jesus is being acknowledged as the king. The world is beginning to obey him and be renewed under his loving care. And God is establishing his people and overthrowing his enemies. So let's look at the words Jesus uses to describe the people that he's come to establish. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I know even as we're reading these, we're counting nine beatitudes if we're saying wherever blessed is, we count it as one. But the, the ninth there is really an extension of the eighth. 
And imagine if we, imagine with me if you will, I know that the text doesn't say this, but imagine with me if you will, if Jesus is looking right at his disciples when he says this last portion. I came declaring the kingdom and they're gonna kill me. They did to the prophets before and they will to you too. But great is your reward in heaven. So hold fast. At this point in history, God's people have longed for the kingdom of Yahweh to come. And they're ready to fight, to work, to struggle, to do whatever to see this kingdom become a reality because it's what they've been waiting for for generations. Imagine what it feels like to wait for some kind of relief for generations, not just, we've waited for a year for COVID to be gone. How wearying is that for us? Imagine waiting for relief that your grandfather, great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather was waiting for. The ones whom Jesus says will inherit the kingdom are not those whom Israel would consider blessed. Because as we read this list, they don't appear to be the people in the best position to inherit anything. Then and today, it would be natural to think it's the rich and strong and powerful who are most blessed. It, it reminds me of, of an interview, and I can't remember the celebrity's name, but he was interviewed and they said, what's, what's the most intriguing thing about fame to you, about being rich and well-known? And he said, honestly, that people just keep giving me stuff. I have plenty, but because I am who I am, they just keep giving me stuff and I don't need it. I think that's what we do as a humanity. The rich, the powerful, the strong, they seem to get more. And those who Jesus lists here seem to be forgotten. So these words would have been arresting to any Jewish citizen. The Jews were a subject people under the Romans, and, and many of the Jews plotted to overthrow the Romans or engage in forms of civil disobedience. And yet Jesus is teaching his disciples and, his, and the multitudes here to resist oppression, and not by violent methods, but through humility and mercy and purity of heart purity of heart, not just to clean up the outside of myself, but to actually seek the cleanliness of inside my body, inside my soul, a passion for righteousness, and not just a passion for personal righteousness, although that is in this text, but imagine what it is for a people to hunger and thirst for righteousness for the whole world to sit in Houston and hope for, for righteousness in, in D.C., in Third Ward. Not just my personal righteousness, but the righteousness of the world, the rightness and justice of the world. Through humility, and a passion for righteousness and joy in the midst of persecution. This is how this society lives. This society will be the blessing to the nations. 
If this were a society that took things by force, it would just be another copy of what came before. Jesus is speaking to a people who are oppressed, not in control of their own destinies or futures. I wonder if we can empathize. I know that's difficult. But the future is not bright for these people. And politically, there's a lot that they want to change. And Jesus says, I understand. Follow me. This is the way. I didn't mean to quote the Mandalorian. Sorry. (laughs) It's just in us, right? I, I mean... But no, this is the way. This is the way you will live. The Sermon on the Mount begins with eight beatitudes that follow a very simple pattern. And I want to tell you, just with the time that we have, we do not have time to get into every nook and cranny. We just don't. I hope that you'll pick up the, the, the real sort of pictures and definitions of these words as we talk. But I have something for you at the end that I, I, want, to, I want you all all of us to pursue after this. But like I said, the Sermon on the Mount begins with eight beatitudes that follow a very simple pattern. Blessed are X, for they shall receive Y. And that's important because it means that the blessing is not found in the subject, but in the predicate. These people are not blessed because of their condition. It's not just blessed are all those who are sad. Blessed are all those <laughs> blessed are all those who are mourning, blessed are all those who are um, of low self-esteem or downtrodden. No. These people are blessed because they are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God. That is the blessing. Jesus' words here are drawing on a long history of what Israel was waiting for, yearning for eager for, hungering for. That's why those of you who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, because the Beatitudes really, the way that they're structured, four Beatitudes and four Beatitudes, both with 36 letters and written in a way that it was to be memorized. See, it's a poem The Beatitudes are a poem that allude back to Isaiah 61, which is a poem of national consolation and restoration. Let me just read Isaiah 61, just the first couple of verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Imagine Jesus saying this. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. They may be called oaks, of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, in in Isaiah's context, God's people are needy and captive and imprisoned and exiled due to 
the national sin and idolatry. They're blind and deaf to God's work and his word. They're mourning over their state and the fact that they have wicked kings and greedy shepherds and blind watchmen. They're unprotected. And yet the servant of Yahweh, capital S, the servant of Yahweh, anointed with the Spirit, has come to change everything. He has come to this downcast community, this small, low community, and he rings in a new day of redemption. So when Jesus sits down, which is the posture for teaching, he sits down and he opens his mouth and he begins to teach. He is announcing and heralding that the promises detailed in Isaiah 61 and beyond are on the verge of fulfillment. Israel, your days of waiting are over. Like Simeon waiting in the temple. Oh, comfort, comfort my people. It has come. God will act on behalf of his people, on the least of his people. Israel is about to be restored, and their mourning turned into dancing, and their faint spirit clothed. The curse is going to give way to blessing. And amid their anguishes and persecution and thirsting and hurting, Jesus is saying, the kingdom has come. It's here. It's for you. It's for all those who believe it's not for them. See, Israel has longed for consolation. Our world does too. We long for consolation, for restoration. But God has something else in mind for the world's consolation and for Israel's consolation that that, that goes beyond personal fulfillment or national revival. While Israel... Even, and even humanity today would love to find their own healing through inflicting pain on their oppressors. God is giving his people something better through very unlikely means. Israel desires to inherit the land as the meek will be given. But, but Jesus says it will not be done through force of strength and might. It will not be done through force of arms. It will not happen from kicking in doors. It will be through meekness. It will be through... Arrogance tries to take the upper hand. Meekness lets it go. Israel hungers and thirsts for righteousness and justice, but it's not going to come by anger and aggression, Jesus says. It's only going to come through humility and gentility. Israel in our world, longs, they long for mercy, but mercy only comes to those who show mercy. Mercy never comes to the vengeful. It never does. When we take, the, when we take vengeance into our own hands, we never get mercy. That never comes back. But Jesus says that those who know that their inheritance is the kingdom, they can show mercy because they have nothing to lose. Like Paul said, I consider it all loss. Even gain is loss 
in the inheritance of the kingdom and in the inheritance of Christ and his spirit. I can be merciful now. Without him, I couldn't. I had to take everything for myself. Israel longs to see God, but God cannot be seen by those who put on an external facade of purity. No, the people who are going to see God are those who practice a purity of heart. Israel longs to be called sons of God, to be vindicated by him through the victory of their own nation, because that's what made them blessed. We're Israel, no one else is. That makes us blessed. But, but Jesus is saying, God only calls his sons those who copy the Father. And in this case, that means peacemakers. And can I tell you, I know you know this, but let's say it again, keeping peace and making peace are very different. Keeping peace is this. Keeping peace, you get out of things. You walk away. But the one who made peace by the blood of his cross, he lost, he lost his life, he lost when we make peace, it costs us, but it should. But the reason we can incur the cost is because we have this great inheritance. Persecution will be inevitable for those who actually follow this way, who follow Jesus. But those who are persecuted for following him are indeed assured of the greatest vindication. Because the promise that would formerly apply to those who were faithful to the Old Testament law now applies to those who are faithful to Jesus. And in Jesus, the epitome and embodiment of the Beatitudes has come because truly, if we really want to get specific, he's the first and greatest inheritor of the kingdom. And he has come to inaugurate. He has already come. We're living in that reality of the kingdom come. Now and later. And he shares his kingdom with anyone who comes to follow him. It is an open invitation. The doors could not be more open. In Jesus, again, we, we see the one who didn't just keep peace but made peace. The one who, though he could have used violence to overthrow his opponents, walked meekly and gentility and accessibility with them. The one who showed the poverty of spirit described in Isaiah 66, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's what poverty of, sp That's what poverty of spirit is. Humility a spirit that knows that it's needy and a spirit that submits to the word of God. This is our king, sojourn. This is the king of the world. This is the human, rather this is the life of human flourishing. This is the life of the church. And if we're going to live this way, 
We must be anchored in the truth that the reason we're blessed is because we have a God who has gladly given us the kingdom and continues to act on our behalf. That is our greatest blessing, and it's one that we are honored and charged to take to the nations. In closing, I, I just want to offer a few thoughts for us um, and an, an assignment. And I haven't given an assignment before, so listen up. First, the assignment. I, I want you to, I want you in, in your parishes, in the people that you were studying the word with, I want you to take these eight Beatitudes in Matthew 5, and I want you to pair them up with the eight woes in Matthew 23. Beatitude one, woe number one. Beatitude number two, woe number two. So on and so forth. I want you to study them, discuss them together, get into the depths, because both of them will help define the other. And I'm interested to see what insights you come up with when it comes to those blessings and woes, what depths emerge out of looking at those. Second, just a second thought. I, I met with a young man last month and um, he was telling me his story. Uh, essentially just telling me all about these epic skiing trips and long hiking trips through Chile and extreme biking trails in Colorado and base jumps with GoPro cameras and parachutes. I was exhausted. <laughs> but it was really awe-inspiring simultaneously showing me these videos of things that he did and jumps that are like, you know, just, you know, checking in and making sure he is married. Is your wife okay with this? Like, things like that, you know. But then he told me about this, about his diagnosis three years ago with a, with a disorder that has left him perpetually fatigued. And now he gets worn out for no reason at all. And his, his body that once was able to do all that he could imagine and more, now, now can't make it to the kitchen and back without a rest. Can you imagine that? He was sure that a blessed life was no longer possible. And yet today, after three years of mourning and struggling and trusting and not trusting, and he's more convinced that he has a God who acts on behalf of those who cannot act for themselves. And let me tell you, he still mourns the loss of his body because it is a loss. What he used to, but what he used to think was his greatest treasure has now paled in comparison to the inheritance of the kingdom and Christ himself. Where has the Lord brought you low Could it be that in that low place is the best place to meet him and know him in a fresh way? 
and to be even more convinced that he acts for those whom he loves and have been called according to his purposes. The Lord has promised to act on behalf of those who are mourning and in pain. He has promised to act on your behalf, sojourn. And the kingdom of God is for you, no matter how unlikely of an inheritor you consider yourself to be. When you acknowledge and engage the poverty of your spirit and turn to him, we, when we turn to him, we will know him in a fresh way. It's, 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 like, it's like what Jesus said in Luke's gospel, fear not, little flock. I love that. Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. When we're in need, we feel little, and I think that's just more the reality. But that's because we are. We are little. And in response, he says, don't be afraid. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He's going to give you everything you need. Third, third thought. I know we've been tempted to believe that our blessedness is anchored elsewhere, so I put together just a different list of beatitudes that I think we might be tempted to believe. And if these land with you, tell someone in your parish about it. Talk to them about it. If, if it doesn't, make up one of your own. Make up one that you know is true about you and tell someone in your parish about it. Let's consider. Blessed are the insulated, for they shall be comfortable. Blessed are the busy, for they shall find purpose. Blessed are the stable, for they shall always be trusted. Blessed are the healthy, for they shall never die. Blessed are the well-liked, for they shall not be alone. Blessed are the successful, for they shall not fail. Blessed are the well-paid, for they shall never worry. Blessed are the good parents, for they shall never know embarrassment. It makes me think of the rich young ruler that came to Jesus saying, you know, what, what must I do more than I've done? I've done a ton, and what, what more? He had land, he had money, he had generational wealth. What would have been generational wealth? Wealth that had been handed down and handed down and handed down. And Jesus asked him to give it all away and follow him, and the rich young ruler, as we know, couldn't bear it, walked away. But I, I'd like to say... I'd like, I'd like to just sort of suggest and maybe just throw it out that, that Jesus wasn't asking him just to give up his money. He was asking him to give away what he thought was the real blessing of God in his life. What do we think is better than the kingdom? And are we willing to throw that out in order to really be inheritors of something that doesn't fade or tarnish or go away. Because just like my friend, just like that boy I talked to, it's very important for us as a community to know what to be grateful for in the years that are to come when our bodies don't respond 
when the promotions stop, when the job opportunities are not there, what are we going to be grateful for? Are we going to cultivate over the next 40 years a gratitude for being forgiven and called sons and daughters and having the inheritance of the kingdom? Because I can tell you that will sustain us when jobs are not part of our life anymore vocationally. When our bodies and our minds fail us and we really loved having them, will we be able to say, I'm the richest man I know, the richest woman I know. What is it for you? Where do we need to repent? Where do you need to repent? Everyone in this room is wealthy in some way, and we, we can't use our wealth to shield us from the needy. We have to provide for, for the needy and protect them from oppressors. The coming of the kingdom is the coming of justice. It's God's assault on oppression and his vindication of the poor. And when the kingdom comes, Jesus wants those that follow him to have the same approach that he does. He expects us to take a stand with the weak and the helpless, not the strong. Because the church is, is now the place where heaven and earth meet and the blueprints of heaven are imprinted on the world over and over and over again. And we shouldn't be surprised that Jesus came to save the world and he saved the world by being rejected and crucified. And as we, the church, go out in the power of the Spirit, we, we become God's agent for bringing the salvation of Jesus, the kingdom of God, to the nations. And in fulfilling that mission, we followed the crucified Savior. So I say to all of us, be glad and rejoice, for the world has always hated those who try to heal it. With such a great inheritance from such a great king who promises to act on our behalf, may we be a humble, merciful, forgiving, pure-in-heart family of peacemakers peacemakers who joyfully endure persecution for the name of Christ while living on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we, we come to you and thank you for being the generous God that you are in bringing the long-promised kingdom. And though we still mourn, though we still groan awaiting the full, the fullness of that to come, we know that the kingdom has already come. It is ours and it will be ours by the grace of Christ and the work of your spirit. But Lord, we don't want it just for ourselves. We want it for our world. Will you make us the kind of people who, are, who, who hunger and thirst for the righteousness of others, for the righteousness that is Christ to others? Make us, make us jealous and mournful for our world in a way that causes us to be generous generous with our lives, generous with our money, generous with everything that we have because we know 
that we have such a great inheritance that we can be merciful, we can be generous, we can be long-suffering. We don't have to take things. We don't have to assert our dominance. Lord, extend your kingdom is meant to grow like a beautiful vineyard and garden covering the earth. Make us faithful to follow you, Jesus, and to know that we, we are little, but there really is nothing to fear because it is the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, and we have it. Put, put steel in our backbones. Put strength in our legs. Open our mouths. Open our hearts and homes to those who have been forgotten and mocked and oppressed and turned away and forgotten. Please, please, we pray all of this in your name. Amen.